Hello and welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be a follow-up interview with Vin Armani, who most of you have recently heard the Demage series that we did where him and I did a long interview, did some elaboration episodes in between, and now we're going to get into some other topics as I shift in my podcast into season three. We're going to talk about some of those types of topics as well as maybe some follow-up questions from the previous interview. So with that, I don't think we need an introduction at all. But um, do you have anything before we get started that you would want to clarify, elaborate on, bring up about that previous interview we did in that series? No, I don't think so. Uh, Just to let you know that I found like the elaborations and all of that, it was an interesting format and I found it it interesting and I found the content interesting. So, uh, So bravo, well done on that. Well, thank you. That is definitely the goal. Um, so I guess the first thing that I wanted to ask you about is kind of a follow-up to that stuff. So okay. as we had talked about with going into this mystical age, into the dim age, and talking about the Church of Woke and kind of the position of power that they are holding and how that's growing, um, as I think about that, the Church of Woke and the way it operates, it operates in a self-destructive manner, so to say, where there is no way that that will continue indefinitely. Like the revolutions go, they get more and more extreme, and they kind of kill themselves out, so to say. And um, and I've heard you reference in other interviews, I think at least one at least, where you had mentioned that um, that you had already been thinking about the successor to the Church of Woke and kind of what's coming after that. And so that's what I wanted to uh, see if you had any more insight on about kind of with this Church of Woke, uh, I guess, movement that's going on now and that's really taking hold. uh, Where do you see that ending and shifting and what else do you see coming up after that? Well, it's hard to say exactly what will come up after that, but I can say the thread that I see carrying through it. So and this is this is nothing new. The, the thread of this particular vein, so, I, I mean, as you said, like, whether you want to call it uh, the Church of Woke, the Kingdom of Darkness, uh, the Prince of this World, those fallen powers and principalities, the, the pattern with them has always been one of death. So, anti-life. That is basically the nature of that particular system. And in particular, it is the 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 worship or the fetishization of the of human intellect so mephistophelian basically and the idea that the the worship of human intellect and our cap- seeing our capability to to alter the physical landscape and to escape what had previously thought to be the limits and the boundaries so i mean look these there this is for better or worse, this is just a part of humanity, right? We make tools, we make technology. What does that technology do? For better or worse, it allows us to overcome death. So modern medicine, right? Um, flying through the sky on airplanes. Uh, first off, you know, a human being can't, if you put a human being in the middle of the sky, like that's death. Right. So like if yeah. you're if you're in the if you're 30,000 feet in the air and you're just a human being all by yourself, you will be dead within minutes because you are going to fall to earth and die. 
Uh, Never mind the fact that you could get up there in the first place. But, you know, an airplane, uh, you've got a pressurized cabin. It's climate controlled. I mean, it's super cold up there. You can't just be up there. You can't, even if you were up there and just floating up there, you couldn't be up there without oxygen. So the, the oxygen is even low. So like the tools that we have, you look at it and like, what are these tools? They are preventing death. They are allowing us to live longer. We say as we get more technologically advanced and we beat nature with culture, one of the results is life expectancies increase. You know, the idea that you look at a pregnant woman. Now, people would look at a pregnant woman and it doesn't go through your head that like, oh God, pray for her. You know, pray for her that like she's alive nine months from now. You know, that really doesn't go through our head. But to our ancestors, for most of human history, that was definitely something that would be happening because, you know, it was a high rate, never mind the infant mortality, which could be 50% or more in certain cultures and, and at certain times. But the, the maternal mortality, the, the, the mother dying, that was very common. And I mean, if a woman had five or six children and she didn't die, in some ways that was like a miracle because it was so common. Uh, and so now we don't have that. And what ends up happening and what has ended up happening, and I think one of the things that we see with COVID is that people expect that you, that this human intellect can overcome everything. The, the power of the human intellect, the worship of the human in- intellect in every way, even this whole idea of the worship of democracy when the the capital, the capital protests, and they said, oh, the temple of democracy was sullied, right? And now they're laying this, the, the cop who died, the Capitol police officer, they're laying him in state, you know, in this religious ritual, um, because uh, he was a guardian of the temple of democracy. And that is, again, well, democracy is obviously a worship of human intellect. The idea is that, well, whatever the majority of human intellects think, if we just organize ourselves by whatever the majority thinks, then that will then we'll do well. And it's like, wow, that's clearly not true. So if you see it as this vein, that human intellect, although what it's there to do is to overcome death, that actually it has flipped and it's inverted and it becomes uh, overcome death for the self. And those natural things that were, were our ability to overcome death, two big things. One is reproduction and having children and having families, right? So this is nature's way of us living forever, at least our genes. And then for us to live forever sort of spiritually, the idea of everlasting life, what the kingdom of God is delivering, is that we also send these righteous memes through with uh, with future generations in what we would call tradition. And that by being righteous and bypassing on a tradition, we allow those future generations that share our physical traits to also survive. That it isn't about us as individuals as much as it is about... Um, us as individuals, the physical being surviving, right? As it is about us in this broader context. And that is the kingdom of of heaven or the kingdom of God. So that's a long way of saying that's the vein. And the vein that, so what I see is, 
um, and, and you've talked about this quite a bit, but it's definitely, this is what leads us to technocracy and the rise of transhumanism. We see it. We're seeing it already. Uh, this is a natural progression is this transhumanism. And underneath it all, the presupposition that people should watch out for is human individuals are entitled to live forever. This is the presupposition underneath it all. And this is going to be, we're going to grow you new organs. We're going to replace parts of you as they wear out. We're going to introduce nanobots and these sorts of things into you that is going to repair your your being as you go forward. And eventually we are going to upload you into the cloud. All underneath it all is that you, the physical human being, is supposed, the individual, the physical individual is supposed to live forever in a physical manifestation. And it's an inversion of Christ, obviously. It's an inversion, exact inversion of the kingdom of heaven. So it's like, that's what is coming. How that manifests itself within the state, how that manifests itself within the culture remains to be seen, but that is going to be the narrative that is going to be the evolution of the Church of Woke. It won't look like the Church of Woke in the way that it looks at all, but you should know that it is the evolution of that same energy moving along. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it would have to evolve. And as I mentioned earlier, if it just continues getting more and more extreme and more and more cancel culture and everything else going on, then eventually it basically eats itself up. Yeah. And so that would make perfect sense. It evolves, but it has those same themes and kind yes. of core values, I guess. Um, one thing that I've, I've thought about recently, and I haven't quite figured it out in my own head, is that I see both that this woke movement is occurring and transhumanism, that that movement is occurring. And I agree with you that that's where we're headed. And uh, so that's one aspect. But at the same time, I also see that a governance model for where we are going um, from here will be something more along the lines of technocracy. And uh, so, and that might not even be really all that involved with the political system. Again, like we had talked about before, the merchant class is corrupt, the corporate world's corrupt, the political class is corrupt. We're seeing a decentralization of political values and movements and these types of things. And so I don't really see the, the politics uh, playing out quite as important of a role in the future as we look ahead to these shifts that are occurring. Um, but I do see technocracy using data to manage people, to allocate resources, to make decisions about uh, mass populations, as well as uh, resource allocation and what gets produced, these types of things. But it seems at least that technocracy is kind of a more I don't know how to word it. It's it's more cold and hard, so to mm -hmm. say, whereas transhumanism and wokeism is more uh, spiritual, uh, immaterial, fluid, that kind of stuff. But I, I do see that both of those are coming and they should, I would think, pair together somehow. Mm -hmm. Do you have any enlightenment as to how those pair together? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think all you have to do is take this notion of we are going to alter human beings, but important in that altering is that we are going to use the types of technologies that are already found to be the most valuable with a moral framework that we saw truly evolve over the last two years. 
So that moral framework is we need in order to keep people alive. This is the narrative in order to keep people alive. It is imperative, as we're going to see with these vaccine passports, not it, it, it was we need to control your behavior. Okay, so that was the masks, the lockdowns. We need to control your behavior in mass to to uh, keep people alive forever. You know, particularly the old and infirm. In other words, the people who are about to die, we need to maintain this facade that they are never going to die. Right. Like we're going to we're going to ride that out until the very end, (laughs) you know, the very, very end. Um, But what we are seeing, what we are going to see with these vaccine passports is that it's going to move from the stick to the carrot. And that the carrot is. If you want to live forever, here is the framework under which you will deliver to us the maximum amount of data about you. The more data we have, the more effectively we can keep you alive. And this is actually, this is intuitive to anyone who has been in uh, this culture with modern medicine, because this is like a presupposition of modern medicine. Like, go in, get the battery of tests, right? Get all of these, we're going to examine you and we're going to gather all the data about what's happening with your body right now. And through the gathering of all of that data, we can then make a prescription about what should be done to make sure that you live forever. And it is it it very much is makes sense that the catalyst was this medical thing, because there is already some notion of the morality of a doctor, a qualified individual, having as much data about your person as possible. This is not actually seen as immoral. It is seen as immoral for someone who is not a doctor or not an authority to have it. But for someone who is a doctor or is an authority, it is seen as moral. Now, it's very easy to see how that corrupts because then we all we got to do is I just got to say one name and that's Fauci, Hmm. right? So we've arrived at a place where the lines are blurred. Like, is this guy a doctor or is he a priest of a new tyranny? Like, is he an advisor of an, cause he's not actually seeing individual patients, is he? But the idea for a lot of these wokists, for a lot of these zombies, if they were like, should Dr. Fauci himself be allowed to have all of your medical information? Most of them would say, well, of course I wouldn't, there would be no problem with Dr. Fauci seeing it. Hmm. And, then you're done. Then it's over. Um, so we we that that last little safeguard, the whole like HIPAA thing. And you notice that this was the thing that people sort of anti-mask people, libertarians or whatever, early on, and some even who are dead enders holding on to it today, like, well, it's it's against the law for you to ask me for my medical information. Right? And it's like that was the last holdout. That was the last little piece, and it's now gone. So what's going to happen is we're, I think that this vaccine passport thing is the perfect catalyst. And it's just, it's not that there needs to be some nefarious actor. It's not that there needs to be some secret cabal who's organizing all of this. You can just look at it as a logical progression of what you would call a utility function of a program. So 
this is a self-organizing system. So if we look at it as like machine learning, and if the machine learning, if the utility function says what is, what is good and what is bad, in other words, this is greater than this, and it says more information about an individual is greater than less information about a, an individual, you clearly see where technocracy ends up going. And you clearly see that the justification is, well, the more information we have about everybody, the longer we can make sure everybody lives and the happier we can make sure they are. And it's just a clear and logical progression. And so it is the technocracy on the one side that is the system that is organizing that. And then it is the transhumanism that is the behavior of the individuals within the system to become more in line with the system. So much of the transhumanism is about the ability to track your bio data. So the insertion of, of things, um, you know, more wearables that are, tra look, we're already doing it. The Apple Watch, for crying out loud, tracking your steps. This is, you can see, we are already, we already think that is morally positive. Like, it is morally positive to have gone out and paid hundreds or thousands of dollars for a device that is going to actually track the number of steps that I take that happens to even be connected to a GPS device that I'm carrying around. And that's morally good. And I should pay to even do that. So you see that it's a very, very easy and logical progression that it's like, we have a lot of bio data. That bio data is valuable in terms of levels of control. But the moral justification is if that data is available to quote unquote authorities, medical authorities, they can keep us safe and healthy and alive. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess with technocracy being the rule of the experts mm -hmm. through data, then that is the perfect system to enact the woke transhumanist agenda or um, whatever you want to call that, that phase mm -hmm. we're heading into. Um, yeah, thank you. That that ties it all together really nicely. Um, so that reminds me of something. I recently finished your new book, Render Unto Caesar, which oh. I would highly recommend to the listeners. Um but the, the one thing that stood out to me, one of the things that stood out to me was how you tied some concepts to, I guess, like fundamental rules of nature. So mm -hmm. uh, the three that stood out to me were the logos, justice and profit, mm -hmm. that you tied those to being fundamental laws of nature, that things have to be organized consciousness has to exist they have to have meaning somehow um and the logos kind of ties in with that you can't have the natural order the way it exists today without logos mm -hmm. and same with justice like we automatically view things in in those terms of justice we do something and there is an equal and opposite reaction. If I put energy into something, I have to get enough energy back. I think you used the example of a lioness. If she expends more energy catching prey than she gets from eating that prey, eventually she dies. There, mm -hmm. um, that's that's an injustice, and um, and that also ties in the aspect of profit. That 
any extra energy she gets from her, her hunting, and that would be considered profit. And mm -hmm. that these things are just natural, fundamental rules of nature. And I really liked that. Um, one of the things that that I then want to follow up and ask you about, though, is that uh, the pendulum kind of swings both ways, as we know, and uh, we go far one side, then far the other side. And I feel like the natural order of things, which would include kind of the ideal of the logos, justice, profit, these types of fundamental characteristics, um, that's kind of in the middle. And so the pendulum passes it, but then it goes far to one side and then it comes back and goes far to the other. And I don't know which way the pendulum's swinging right now. It depends on how you classify the sides. But um, regardless, it is swinging away from that natural order. We are, we are mm -hmm. on the side. And with that, how do we maintain the natural order? How do we maintain and stand up for these fundamental rules of nature? How do we... Uh, I guess, preserve that? How do we act as the salt and as the light? How do we mm -hmm. do that when the culture and all of these movements are swinging away from these fundamental rules of nature? Oh, and that, well, the question that you just asked is the question. That is actually the question of life, for better yeah. or worse. So, Anything that so this is this it's such a it's such a good question and I hope that anybody who's listening will actually like go back and re-listen to the question that you just asked and then like stop and meditate on that question because even if we go to these examples from nature you know you, like you're talking about the lioness and the fact that she needs to get more energy. Uh, she needs to she she needs to get more energy from what she hunts than it than she had to expend in hunting that thing. So that's just an axiom. There's nothing morally right or wrong about that. And actually, when it's when that is the case, she lives. And when that is not the case, she dies. And that's just the axiom. And so. Nature, and this is this very much goes into all of the things that I'm discussing in the book. The idea is that we are not in a like a static state, a vacuum state. Uh, like things are in flux. And so that means that there are going to be times when she actually expends more in the hunt than she gains. And we know that such times exist because fat stores exist in creatures. The ability to go long periods of time expending energy and not recovering any, and that that profit isn't just excreted as waste, it's stored for later. Well, the fact that it is stored for later means that in our evolutionary history, there were times when it was out of balance. And the same thing goes for justice. So you look, we have these advanced justice systems. And you know, the justice system that you will have if you go to a court in a modern Western nation is significantly advanced from what would be called English common law. And that is significantly advanced to what you will find on the, the stele where uh, Hammurabi's code is written, this ancient written law that we say is perhaps the oldest ancient written law of, of the West that we know of. So it evolves. 
And you say, well, why does Hammurabi's code evolve? Right? Hammurabi's code is basically what's the purpose of it? Well, the purpose of it is to keep social cohesion. That conflicts were going to come up that needed arbitration. There needed to be some set of rules. And because there was a uniform set of rules that had already been declared by the king and that he was living by those, that was justice. But yet those rules change. And the reason why they change is because they're never complete. The, the scenarios will come up that are the exceptions. And it is within the vein of those exceptions that we have to recalibrate. It is within the vein of those uh, exceptions that we realize that the target is a lot smaller than we thought it was, actually. That we're aiming and we're, we're hitting what we thought was the bullseye with our system of justice, with our behaviors in the world as we're trying to uh, have a profitable business, for instance. You know, and then what happens? Then this COVID thing comes along, let's say. And it's like, here's your business. It was chugging along. It was doing just fine. And then all of a sudden, oh, here the landscape on the ground changes. The same way that maybe it's a particularly dry season in the area where this lioness is living. And now all of a sudden the, the prey that she normally had has moved 10 to 20 miles in their migration away from her, right? So it's like, does she survive? Does the business survive? Well, if it does survive, what it's done is it's it's refined its rule set. It's refined its theory about how do what is the practice that I need to maintain. And so this is the same across all domains that you begin with this sort of broad theory, Hammurabi's code. But then over time, as just the, the law of probabilities will state, there, is going to, there are going to be some things that don't fit within that. And there may even be some very big ones that are actually existential threats. And so it is, it is with whittling down, and it's a process of natural selection, like whittling it down, that is the answer. So as we see the pendulum swinging, and we see, oh, our old mode of being is not answering this. It is not solving this. What we should actually understand is that we are sinners in the literal term, hata or hamartia. We are missing the mark. And somehow what, what we, where we thought the mark was, we keep shooting arrows and it's like, oh no, the target has moved. We need to stop, reframe our gaze of how do we survive now? How do we hit the target? We still want to aim at the target, right? And it is, it is in us hitting the target that the pendulum starts to swing back again because it is all, things are always in a state of corruption. They are always in a state of decay. So the target is a, it's a moving target. And the target moves through these exceptions. The target moves through crises. The target moves through unexpected occurrences, uh, and and if we are properly hitting the target, the number of and frequency of unexpected occurrences gets lower and lower, and the degree of crisis that it takes to actually be a crisis gets lower and lower and lower uh, until eventually you have a a uh, a system where things are operating in relative stability. Uh, eventually, something comes along and still knocks that off, and it still degrades and it still corrupts over time. And, uh, and this is really the two sides of what is happening right now. We're, we're in a crisis and inflection point 
One side is saying we need a totalitarian solution for control of all other people to bring us back. That's what all these lockdowns, this is what the woke movement is. We need to control even the things that people think. And if we can do that, we can create this kingdom of man on earth, right? The infernal kingdom run by the prince of this world. We can create a utopia. Whereas the idea of the kingdom of God is internal. Uh, If this is falling apart, it's because we've missed the mark or we've, we've taken our eyes off the mark. Let's get our eyes back on the mark. Let's stop sinning. And then from there, we can move forward. Let's re-embrace the aspects of tradition that we've lost, that we've closed our eyes to, or that we've forgotten. And that's it. That's that's the point that we're at. Okay. Well, I I would like to get into some concrete examples of that. I want to talk about community in general. Okay. Uh, but before I do, uh, one last thing is that with the way things are going and with the reality that most of the people we are going to be around and interacting with, at least for the average person, let's say, these people are what we would consider normies. They are people that are going along with the mainstream culture that are not necessarily uh, woke in the term of being awakened to how things are really playing out. They might be woke in the other term, but mm. um, they they are not awake in, in this uh, type of a framework where they have been enlightened to the extent of you know what we are talking about here. And so as we talk to friends and family and loved ones and uh, people at work, whatever, how, how do we handle those interactions and that communication? Because on one hand, we see something that we know as truth and as morality and as the way to go, so to say, we we can see what the target is and what we are trying to hit, hitting that mark. And we can see how society and culture and the trend is moving away from that. And we see other people getting sucked into that or not being aware of that, not realizing that. And obviously with our actions and the way that we talk and the things that we are talking about and our interests, all of these things are going to be contrary to probably the majority of people in our surrounding culture. And so what do you have any recommendations for just how to talk to people and interact with people who are seeking that other path, even if they don't really realize it? I do. I do. And I think one of, I can say what is definitely not effective. And it's something that I've been saying since the beginning of this crisis. And that is, you are not going to win anybody over by refuting their, refuting their current position with facts and figures and these types of things. Um, you actually, you, you set yourself up as an enemy to them. And the reason why is that for those who are normies, and even as we might say, and even those who are, uh, let's say, pseudo woke, uh, not fully in, let's say, the the zealotry, those people are basically lost at this point, Um, the zealots and the the priests of the church of woke. But that's a tiny percentage of people. For most people, what's really going on with them is they're scared. I think everybody can see that... there's been a massive shift and the world is not what it once was. It it is not what it was even a year and a half ago. And people see this, 
Now, most are still in denial about this, or most don't know quite how to frame this, or most can't articulate it. Uh, most don't want to deal with it. It's something very difficult to deal with. So they are, uh, you know, they're laid out on hopium, you might say, and uh, and are just hoping that things could go back to the way that they are. And we see how the powers that be are using that to shape the new society, uh, the promise that things will go back if you will just accept things will go back to the way that they were if you will just accept this thing that will ensure that things will never go back to the way that that, that it was. Uh, that's that's the degree that people are in denial. So, you know, to the question of, well, then how do you deal with that? What do you do? You know, well, if they're scared, if someone is scared and irrationally, if they're, they have irrational fear, Giving them facts and figures and trying to be rational and making a rational argument to them, I think anybody who's got any sense or spends a minute to think about that will see that that's a completely ineffective mode of behavior. Uh, take it away from all of this and just imagine that you are with someone, let's say, who has a phobia. Let's say they're terribly scared of dogs, right? They're terribly scared of dogs and there's a, a cute little dog who's not barking, who's calm, who's nice, and who you know. Maybe it's even your own dog. Maybe some people have had this experience and someone has had a terrible trauma. They've been traumatized regarding dogs and they come and they say, <gasps> they start freaking out. They're hyperventilating about the dog. They're doing all of this. It, is it really going to help if you're like, well, you know, actually only 0.01% of dogs have ever actually bitten anybody. And if you look at this dog and then you start going through, no, that's not helping at all. What, ha what does help? The main thing that helps is to see that others around are not afraid. And especially those who they view as of high social status or high social value. So the biggest thing that you can do is in a non-confrontational way and without trying to shame them and without trying to make them feel less than the same way that you would with that dog. Just carry on unafraid. Pet the dog. Right. Do these things. But it takes a certain degree of strength, a great degree of strength, when the majority of people around you are scared of dogs. This is social normative pressure. So it's one thing if this person shows up at your house, and let's say maybe you're having a party, a barbecue, there's five people over, and the dog's running around, and the kids are playing with the dog, and the adults are playing with the dog, and everybody loves the dog, and the dog is sweet and, and, and enjoying itself. You know, It's a member of the beloved member of the family that would never hurt a fly, and you have one guest in attendance who's deathly afraid. But flip the scenario and imagine that you show up, and you're the only one who's not afraid. And everybody else is freaked out over this dog. They want the dog to go. Maybe they even want to kill the dog. Right? This dog shows up and they want to kill the dog. Maybe it's your dog. <laughs> right? And it's like, you, you have to see that the only, the, the way to behave in that is to not allow yourself to fall into their fear. And that may mean distancing yourself from them. That may mean you know, having the strength to sit in that environment and not be afraid. And maybe one or two people gain, have enough courage or are not significantly afraid to where they come up and pet the dog, and that's fine. And then in seeing them, more people. But you have to flip the social normative influence. And so this is one of the reasons why I have been speaking in as much as I possibly can and trying to communicate uh, a framework of 
you know, use religious and mystical terminology when you're speaking. Um, because these normies, for the most part, are not scared of that, which is nice. Like, it's incredibly powerful, and it's an incredible uh, bit of strength for you to, to draw from, and it's an ancient tradition that clearly people have been willing to die for. It's incredibly powerful, and they actually probably should be scared of it if they knew anything about history, right? Um, it's been used for... It's been used for evil, too. It's a, it's a tool. But in this case, it can be very righteous. Speak in mystical and, and religious language. Speak in the language of symbols. Um, this is the way, really, to, uh, to demonstrate a lack of fear, to demonstrate an understanding of the world. And then as things play out in the way that you've described, then others will have the ability to, to, to drop the fear. But it's not to hit it head on. It's not to try to meet it with, with rationality. You can't meet irrationality with rationality, but you can definitely meet irrationality with mysticism. You really can. And so we have powerful mystical tools at our disposal, and that's the way to hit it. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that reminds me of, I think it's the very last... Um, kind of parable that you give in your book about the king that knows it all. And he's mm -hmm. always right. And uh, I won't ruin the whole thing for everybody. But uh, basically, the main point of that is that it's not about being right. It is about taking action, that mm -hmm. being right will only get you so far. You have to take action. You have to do something with that knowledge. And that really fits in with what you were just talking about, that it's not about being able to be right on the issue it's mm -hmm. about being able to live it out in a way that other people can see it and experience it yes. and witness it in, especially in a more uh, mystical framework rather than facts, data, logic. And yeah, I like that. Uh, so one of the ways that we can as individuals live out these principles and do that in a way that other people can see is to grow a community is to not mm -hmm. just be an individual, but to be a part of something uh, bigger than yourself, so to say, but in a good way, where you have these communities of people that know each other, they can support each other, they can help each other. But it's also a good example to others where, you know, if I talk about having a get together over at the house, uh, given the current climate out there in the culture, having, you know, a dozen people at your house might sound a little scary to some people. Mm -hmm. And that might sound a little morally wrong and lots of issues with that. But um, yeah, I think that is a good example of petting the dog and showing people that it's okay. Um, and that's one of the things that kind of uh, interests me about your, I guess, more recent past and moving to Saipan and stuff is that you've got kind of two influences, at least from an outsider's perspective, this is what I see, is that you've got that one aspect of the crypto community in Saipan um, that partly drew you in and that sounds like a very profitable community there. And then you also have some sort of religious community there. You've talked mm -hmm. about uh, praying with people and meeting up with some other men and having very interesting and in-depth conversations and discussions. And so uh, I want you, if you don't mind, um, to lay out kind of what those two 
communities are. And if there are others, then please share. But kind of what are those and what kind of impact and influence has that had on you? How has that been profitable to you? And how does that tie in with this aspect of living things out? Well, they're, for the most part, they're, they're, I would say they, every, so everybody's certainly in that religious vein is involved in the crypto side in one way or another, some deeper than others. So I would say one is maybe an outcropping of the other, although uh, it seems that the, and, and it's been young men. So young the young men who are coming here, interestingly enough, have been more coming for the, let's say, the spiritual or religious aspect whereas the crypto community has seemed to grow internally on the island. So it has even extending into like literal like cabinet level secretaries, right? Like the the interest of this is, and even the government's interest in it has been wholly positive from the people on the ground here. So much of that has been, it's, it's, it's very interesting. So they are, so it, it that part of it is weird. I don't think that Alex Ugorgi, who founded Crypto Frontier here, had even thought about this. But it was clear to me even before I moved and an interesting tidbit. But I think it's also, what is it? It's, it's, perhaps it's fate. So Bitcoin in the early people who were writing even the philosophical aspect of Bitcoin. So people like Nick Zabo, he's got this great, uh, people should read it. It's a paper called Shelling Out. And I think it's actually from even before Bitcoin was released. It may be from 2005, 2006. It's kind of a history of money in a way. Very good, very much related to Bitcoin. It's the reason why some people have said, oh, Nick Zabo might be, Satoshi Nakamoto is because of this paper. But, you know, there are several of these interesting monetary artifacts in history that people draw back on. Uh, so, for instance, wampum would be one, which was the shell money of, the, of, of North America that actually Rhode Island, the island, when the colonists paid for it, they bought it from the natives. They bought it using wampum. The Iroquois people had used this shell money, and that's why Nick Zabo calls this thing shelling out. They had used it, and there's some interesting history. It's modern enough that there's a that there's a record of it. But another one that is commonly commonly brought up is the rye stones of Yap. So, Yap is this island, and there are these giant stones. And people who who have some economic background would know that this is something that they bring up all the time. And uh, the people there for thousands of years used these stones that were quarried on another island, brought there. They would they were basically like giant wheels and they would have a hole in the middle and it would just sit there. And then you would trade basically the title of it, the title of the stone. And there were these stone gardens that were kind of like banks that are still there. And it just so turns out that's just South of us. Not only that, when I got here and I started to meet people. So the two groups of people who are here are the Chamorro who are part of this Marianas Island chain. And the Carolinians, who came here a bit later, they've come here in waves. But they're a little bit darker. 
they their language doesn't have this, the Spanish in it that the Chamorros do, and they're from the islands of the Federated States of Micronesia, which is just to the south. Well, what are the islands? Chuk, Yap, there's several other ones. So I started meeting all these Yappese people. So I remember sitting and talking. It was actually with the daughter of the Senate president here. <laughs> so sitting and talking with her, and she said, oh, yeah, you know, my family were from Yap, were Yappese. And I said, oh, do you know? So the rye stone, she's like, oh, yes, yes. And I said, and then I explained to her the connection with Bitcoin. And she's like, have you told anybody else about this? She was like, we should, we should know. I was like, yeah, this is going to. And without even people knowing, they've, boom, they've connected to it, right? Like it's so deep in their understanding of how value works that they get it right away. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating it's been. Right. And the people the 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 people with political power who have been the most interested are of Carolinian descent. So interesting. Right. Incredibly interesting. And so that has that has grown here. But what it seems is that the people who are coming here. We thought that it was going to be about the crypto stuff, but as we start to interrogate them, it's much more about the spiritual aspect of things that we've been talking about. And for me. More and more, obviously it's in the book, but you know, even, even in the last several days and with the, the, the circles that I'm traveling in and, and the intellectual circles are the things that people are working on, um, the, they're, they're not, they can't be separated from each other for me. So I see this pattern, this Christian Trinitarian pattern laid on top of Bitcoin. And the people that have come here and then have explored Bitcoin more, some of them Bitcoin developers, young men, again, it becomes obvious. Anybody who's close to the metal of Bitcoin, this connection becomes very, very obvious. And it becomes very profound that we're not just dealing with digital gold at all. We're not dealing with a savings, a digital savings account at all. We're dealing with something really amazing, like a concept that is... That is a fundamental shift in our understanding of, of reality and that actually that it works <laughs> and that it has value is just the proof that it is a reflection of reality. Um, so. So, yeah, they're not disconnected from each other, that that spiritual or religious vein, and it just maps on to Christianity and it maps on to Orthodox Christianity more than more than any of them, because it has that mystical aspect. So. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. I'm interested to see where that goes in in the rest of my life. But now I I very much feel that I have been um, called to pursue that vein and to to help people and teach people this this aspect of this interesting revelation. I would say. Yeah, yeah. So you've you've mentioned that. Uh, and I don't know if you said this specifically, but what I got out of it at least was that uh, Bitcoin is, in a way, in the image of God. Yes. And uh, it sounds like that's what you're connecting here as well. And I, I get the the ideas of, let's say, that there is no government involved. It's this uh, self-sustaining system. It is uh, built on spontaneous order all of these things that you would say maybe the invisible hand and lots of uh, references that would tie in really well with um, how the Christian worldview sees God as acting in the world. And we can see that the system that uh, Bitcoin is, is in line with that and in line with that way. 
Um, what are some other connections there? Could you draw that out a little more? Sure. So it, it lays so tightly onto it that some of these, and it's interesting because I write, I, I write about some of these in the book, but they are just even recently, like even in the last week, revealing themselves to me. So I have a section in the book where I talk about mysteries and miracles, like where I, def where I define that. A lot of the book was literally, it's, it felt channeled. So I would get done with my morning prayers and then I would be walking back and the whole entire concept would just dump on me at once and I'd sit down and write and that was it, right? And so there are many of those. But so uh, let's talk about the, the um, incarnation, right? So this is something that materialists have a very difficult time with. And even I think many Christians have a difficult time with this, that they're like, well, it's a metaphor. The, the idea that Mary is a virgin and the Holy Spirit comes into her and then, of course, you know, the virgin birth and all of this. That, uh, that Christ was incarnated in that way. So the Annunciation and the, the Incarnation. And they say, well, it's a metaphor for this and that and that. And the same thing with the resurrection. But, you know, what is a miracle? I talk about this in the, in the book. And the idea of a miracle, even the, the greatest materialist, you know, a, a, a physicist, you want to go and talk to them, and he's going to say, well, nothing is impossible. It's just highly, highly improbable. And... For some things that are quote-unquote miracles, uh, like somebody spontaneously being cured of cancer, for instance, right? That's a miracle. And the church would say if that person had been venerating an icon, that that, that would be a wonder-working icon now, the Orthodox Church, right? Like, oh, he went, he prayed to the icon, and his brain cancer was cured. And uh, a materialist, a scientist would say, ah, it's not a miracle. It's not sp anything spiritual. It's just a very unlikely event, right? And they would say, well, there is a probability. And the probability of that is one in, let's say that they said it's one in, a, it's got to be less than the number of human beings that have ever had cancer, right? But let's, yeah. say that it's, let's say that it's one in, let's say it's one in a trillion, right? Let's say it was even that. Let's say it's so unlikely that it's one in a trillion. Okay. Well, we could do the same thing for the idea of a, a spontaneous pregnancy. As a matter of fact, I think, I think there have been some recorded where perhaps there's something going on with this person and whatever, and then I don't know if they deliver it live or stillborn or whatever, but it's like even, you know, a, a scientist very materialist is going to say, okay, I'll admit it's not impossible, but it's so unlikely that we should just see this as a story. Okay, well, how unlikely is it? One in a trillion? One in a quadrillion? One in a quintillion? And they're like, well, maybe, okay, one in a quintillion. Let's say it's that. Okay, well, the <laughs> that, is, that is so much more likely than that any given hash of a Bitcoin miner will be uh, the a valid ha block hash. So like right now, in order to get a block hash on BTC, there I don't know what the exahashes is right now, but it's um, it's uh, 17 zeros in the exahash. So it's like a million, 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 million or something like that. 17 zeros in an exahash. So maybe it's 20, 30 exahashes or something like that right now. So it's 30 with 17 zeros after it. So the chance of any given hash is one in that. 
and yet blocks are found every 10 minutes. And it's, 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 you've got to do that. No, it's not one in that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a lot more than that. You have to do that many hashes every second to get one block every 10 minutes. Okay. So the likelihood, it's so random and the likelihood is so tiny that it's like if you had taken every human being that had ever lived and you got them to do these by hand, if they could, for all of their life, it's almost impossible that one of these would have showed up, that you would have gotten a hash. So like Bitcoin is a manifestation of miracles constantly. Every 10 minutes, there's a miracle. There's a miracle that is less likely than a virgin birth. Every 10 minutes in Bitcoin. That's just one, that's just one thing. So it's like when you start to see, and it's, that is real. Like what I just said is a fact. It is mathematically provable. So when you start to understand the system as that, your mind starts to get blown because you start to see that it's like, oh, oh, these things can happen. And if something like this did, wait, well, how does that happen? Like, how did that, wait, how, how did we create a system where we could even find these numbers within those rules? Well, it's logos, right? It's our, it's our creative ability. It is us as humans because these numbers pop up and they're not numbers that anyone on earth has ever seen before. No human's ever seen these numbers when they pop up. It's the first time they've ever been expressed, probably in the universe. Chances are. So we're, we're dealing in a space. Bitcoin is dealing in a space and dealing with concepts that are far beyond materialism, but that are mathematically provable within by the materialist. And that is, that is the space where when you start to understand and meditate on that, and then you start to see that what these ancients are talking about and why certain things are venerated when they happen, what they're talking about is the same energy. It's logos. Like, that's what they're talking about. This is going to be the cutoff period for this first section of this interview that I did with Vin Armani. There will be two more sections to follow after this. I am not doing elaboration episodes in between. I think we cover everything well enough. And especially after going through all the detail in the previous series, I just don't feel like there is a need. And I will also give a heads up on two things. Number one... We are coming off the tail of the Julianne Romanello interview and, more importantly, the Allison McDowell interview. And especially Allison McDowell has a much more negative view on blockchain technology, obviously, than Vin Armani does. And so uh, I felt like this was a really good contrast because I actually personally agree with the vast majority of what both of these people have to say. And so it is very helpful for me and hopefully for you as well to be able to look at these things from multiple perspectives. And with that, the other caveat would be that 
personally, I don't agree with everything that Allison McDowell said or that Vin Armani says. I definitely have disagreements, and I think sometimes that is clear to you as you listen, and sometimes it is not so clear, but I just wanted to let you know that because I would guess that most of you also have some things that you really resonate with and you really agree with, and some things that you would want to argue with these people about, and I will just let you know you are not alone. That is just the way it is. But both, and let's get back to Vin Armani, he has a great resource for all of these things. He really sees this from a different perspective than most people. And even though he probably goes a little bit far into the spiritual meaning of things and connecting this with Christianity and the idea of logos, for example, these types of things, he probably goes much further in these areas than most of you listeners would probably take this. But I think that regardless, and regardless of what you think of that, you can really get a lot out of this perspective and learn a lot, and we can get some good useful information here. So I want to thank Vin again. It was really great having him on the first time and really great having him on this time. I know a lot of you have been waiting to hear more of Vin Armani. That was a series, the Demage series that we did before. That was one that was very popular. And so hopefully you guys really enjoy this follow-up here. I would like to say thank you to all of the financial supporters of the show. There are a few on Patreon and now there is more than one on Subscribestar. Now we have two on there. So thank you guys very much. As a heads up, in case you haven't noticed and you are a subscriber, I have released this entire interview that I did with Ven Armani. I actually released it weeks ago. So if you did not see that and you would like to listen to the whole thing in its entirety or listen to it at your leisure without this outro and the previous intro, that kind of stuff, then feel free to do so. You can access those through either the Subscribestar page or the Patreon page, or you can always reach out to me and I will email you a copy that you can download if that is easier for you. I have also released a few sections of the book that I am working on, The Theology of Obedience. And so if that is something that you are interested in, then feel free to read through that. I would love commentary on that and feedback on that. It's something that is still a work in progress. I haven't even gone back and done official editing on everything. I've read through it a few times and made some minor changes here and there, but it's still in its rough draft phase. But especially connected with this recent Venarmani interview, there's a lot of content there that I think overlaps a lot of the stuff that get discussed on this podcast. And so that is something that I think at least some of you will really enjoy. So feel free to check that out as well. I will also say thank you for those who have given me feedback in general on the show. I do get emails every now and then. The most recent one would be from Diego. I believe that would be the pronunciation. They sent some very helpful feedback and some commentary, and that is something that I really do benefit from. I am able to hear what you guys think about things and adjust things and think about it as I plan future episodes and this kind of thing. So please continue to do that. Also, I did get an email from somebody about writing a review. It was someone who was a little less tech savvy, I think, than many others. And so there wondering, well, how do you do that? I'm assuming their podcast player didn't have that option. Well, the 
usual way that people would do that would be to get on Apple. I think it's Apple Podcasts now, not app, not iTunes, but uh, you can figure that out, I'm sure. But if you get on Apple, you can leave a review there. And Apple Podcasts is probably the most popular way that people do reviews and still listen to podcasts. But you can also leave, leave reviews on Spotify. You can also go to the website for this podcast. That would be ourfoundations.podbean.com. And you can leave comments on specific episodes. You can like them. You can do things like that. So there are multiple ways. Typically, you at least have to sign up in order to leave a review. But usually, all that means is you create a screen name, they send you an email, you click a link to confirm, and then you can leave a review. So I know it's a bit of a process. And if your app that you listen to this podcast on does not allow for reviews and ratings, that can be a bit of a pain. But I do greatly appreciate it for those of you who will take the time to do that. It is very helpful. And I hope that you will continue to enjoy this show and support through your listening, through talking to others about this and sharing this podcast with other people, uh, financial support. Uh, There have been two people, I think, over the past probably few months that have dropped off on the Patreon side of things. But hopefully they are still listeners to the show. And just know that if you do decide to support financially and you have to back off at some point, that's not that big of a deal. I will not feel any animosity towards you in any way. I actually had given the caveat that if you want to sign up just to get some extra benefits of some kind, if you hear that I release something that you really want to hear, you really want to see, sign up for a month and then cancel, and that's perfectly fine. That's a very legitimate way of doing it. You're basically buying the interview, so to say. Like, if you want to hear this whole interview with Ven Armani in its entirety, you could sign up for a month, pay $4 once, and then you get the entire interview. And basically, you paid $4 to get the whole interview. So if that's something that you are interested in doing, feel free to do so. In next week's episode, Vin and I will get more into the things that we have been discussing, more into blockchain and Bitcoin and spirituality and community and all of these types of things. And I think you will really enjoy it. So please come back next time as we continue this interview with Vin Armani. With that, I'm out of here. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.